Welcome to One Life Online. The podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from Isaiah chapter 42, titled, My Servant, My Chosen One, My Son, presented by Roy Kasika. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word by His Spirit and cause you to walk according to His will by His grace. Read with me as I consider Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from NIV. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. For he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Let us pray together. Our God and Father in heaven, this is your word. As we worship you together as one body by studying your word, God, may our ears and our hearts be open to the instruction of the Holy Spirit, and may we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just reading these four verses, it's not difficult to see that Isaiah chapter 42, at least verse 1 through 4, is specifically talking about one person. It is God introducing someone who he calls his servant. He's he's referred to this person as his servant. And what's this passage saying about about the servant? The passage is saying that this servant will bring justice. It's easy to see that that's what it means because the the phrase or the concept of bringing justice has been repeated at the end of verse 1. It comes out again at the end of verse 3 and somewhere in verse 4. There's this recurring theme of the servant who God is introducing to his people bringing justice. So before we get any further, maybe we can talk about what justice means. What is justice? According to the dictionary, we can think of justice as being an administration of the law. Doing the right thing or ascribing the right consequences or the right benefits to those who deserve it. Uh, it, it, The dictionary also explains justice as being the quality of being fair and reasonable. My father-in-law happens to be a judge, and I see him him being just in many of the decisions he makes. He he does the right thing at the right time. He ascribes, or or he he makes the right conclusions about the right things with reason at the right time and in all fairness. And that's generally what we think about justice, 
uh, where we are on, on, let me say, on a human level. We think about justice as giving those who deserve what they deserve. So anyone who deserves, let's say in, in the court of law, whoever deserves to go to jail must go to jail. And those who don't deserve to go to jail should stay free. But what is justice according to the Bible? Justice, according to the Bible, is really what the Bible means when it says, when, when it's talking about making things right. Whenever God promises to accomplish justice, what he's saying is that I'm going to make things right. I'm going to turn things into their original state. We believe that when God created the universe, he created them to be good. As a matter of fact, in Genesis we see that when God created the, th uh, the earth and the things that are, that, that are in it, he looked at the earth and he said, it is good. And then he created mankind. And the reason he created mankind was so that mankind can live in fellowship with him. And so, Throughout the rest of the Bible, when we see that God promises to bring justice, what he's saying is that I'm going to make things right. And so in that sense, it's difficult to talk about justice without talking about righteousness. Justice and righteousness must go hand in hand. You can't be just and not be righteous. The only way to be just is to first be righteous. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about making things right in justice. And so the only way that God can be a judge is if he is righteous, which he is. And when he talks about making things right, then what he's saying is, is he's going to be loving, he's going to be merciful, he's going to be gracious, he's going to be generous and restorative. And this is what justice means in a biblical sense. As a matter of fact, uh, Proverbs 29 and Isaiah 1 suggest that the justice, su suggest that justice is really caring for the poor and wickedness is having no concern for the poor. So those are two opposites. Justice is caring for the poor, which is something that we see in Isaiah chapter 1. And wickedness is having no concern for the poor. So, I think it's not difficult to see that we are desperate for righteousness. We're desperate for justice. It's not difficult to see because anytime you turn on the news and you see the things that are happening around the world, you see how, you see how, how much hatred there is, you see how, mu how people are lost. Turn on, the, turn on the radio and listen to the news. Open the newspaper. Go out into the street and see how people misuse their freedoms is quite telling of how desperate we are for justice. Why do we need justice? We need it because we're desperate for righteousness. We're desperate and we are oppressed by sin. And in most cases you find that the kind of people who are, you know, getting out on the streets, uh, protesting, rioting, calling out for justice, the only kind of people who do that are those who are oppressed. You never find the, the oppressors fighting for justice, do you? 
No, certainly not. And so we who are oppressed by unrighteousness are desperate, severely desperate for justice. The challenge is that we can't provide justice for ourselves. We can't provide justice on our own. If we try to do that, there's chaos. Uh, one way to think about that is if, if, if Pastor Martin does something to me and I'm seeking justice and I try to do something about it, the only thing I'll do is not out of righteousness. Instead, my response will be out of anger. And so I, if I have to take matters into my own hands, I cannot be just. What that means is that we cannot achieve justice on our own. And that's why if you read through chapter 41, the previous chapter of Isaiah, you see that uh, God, the, Isaiah shows that mankind has generally been misguided in seeking their own justice. Chapter 41 shows how mankind sought justice in idols. And, and, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's normal, you, you see, we, we generally expect people to look for justice in places where we find immediate responses. One good example is whenever we, we want to have an immediate response. I heard someone talking about the need for marriage. There's a lot of young women and young men who are desperate for marriage. And many times people will come into the church and misguide Christians and convince them. They say, you want to get married? I know a witch doctor somewhere. You know, you want to get married, here's something that you can do. And we easily and quickly turn to idols for immediate results. We want justice, we want it now. It doesn't seem like God is doing anything about it. Let me turn to something else. Let me turn to, and, and so many times we feel like we're oppressed by sin and we turn to solutions. We turn to other things for solutions just like the people of Israel did. Now what God does in chapter 41 of, this cha uh, of Isaiah is that he, pre he compares himself to idols. He says, he says, he says who, who told you about the past? Who is it who created the universe? Was it not I? Why then are you turning to idols? Who is it who has predicted the future? Who is it who has prophesied the things to come that came to pass? Was it not I? Why is God doing that? Because God wants these people to turn back to him. God wants these people to know that he is the only one who can save them. And so that leads us well into chapter 42, where God is presenting the one who he calls his servant, and he presents him as the one who is the bringer of justice, the one who serves justice. And as we go through these four verses of chapter uh, 42, we're going to see that the servant here who's described is really quite similar to the person of Christ. And the conclusion that we'll make is that Christ is the servant of God. We're going to see that there are three descriptions of the servant of God. We'll see that, uh, uh, we'll see that the relationship, the servant's relationship to God is one of the descriptions. 
then we'll see that his personality has also been described and we'll see his zeal in serving justice. And we'll see how all these three descriptions of the servant of God uh, blend well into the, the, the work that he does in serving justice. And so as we get into, this, into these verses, it's my hope that every single one of us at the end will understand truly who the servant of God is and how he serves justice and why we need him so desperately. So here we are, desperate for justice. The question we're asking is, why do we need to turn to God? Why do we need to turn to the, to the servant of God for justice? What is it about him that makes him worthy of our attention? And these are the three things that the scriptures say. Number one, the servant of God is one with God in serving justice. We can trust the servant of God because he is one with God in serving justice. And we'll see that from verse one. It says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. You see, what's happening here is that God is displaying his pride, his confidence, his his pleasure, he's showing that he truly endorses his servant. He finds pleasure in him. He's proud of his servant. He's confident of his servant. And that's why he says, I uphold him. He is my chosen one in whom I delight. You know, it's in the same way you might, you might say the same thing about your child. If anyone who has children who might have had an opportunity to attend their child's sports day, and you see your child winning a race, and he's the first in the race, and you stand up, jump in the, in the stalls, and you say, yes, that is my son. Anyone who looks around will see the child who's won the race and look at you who's extremely proud and instantly make the connection and say, that must be the father of that child, or that must be the mother of that child. It's exactly what God is doing here. He's showing that, yes, that is my person. I am one with him. He is my child. He is my servant. In the same way, anyone here who's a, let's say, an owner of an enterprise, or one who, who's in charge of an enterprise, we, we, want to, we want to have employees who are reliable reliable enough to leave in position, in charge of, uh, of the organization when I leave, right? So for instance, if, if, if I'm the CEO of a company and I want to take a vacation, I want to know that the person who I leave in charge is capable of representing me in everything they do. And so I might tell my employees, I'm leaving, but this is the person I've left in charge. This is the person who represents me well. This person is going to make decisions that are good for this company, and I can trust that, that this person's decisions are healthy for the benefit of the company. What that means is that anyone who receives instructions from the person you've left in charge 
is going to receive those instructions as though you were the one giving them. That's exactly what God is doing here. He's introducing his servant as one who represents him well. He's introducing his servant as the one who truly is one with him. And we see that God confirmed this sort of confidence at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus came out of the water and John had just baptized him, the Holy Spirit came on him as a dove and an audible voice was heard saying, of God, the voice was of God, the voice was saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So we can see that the servant of God who's been presented here is one with God. And if he's one with him, then what he's doing is that he is doing the will of God. Anyone who is one, anyone who represents you well is certainly doing your will. If you have any house help at home or, uh, or a nanny who takes care of your children, you leave them at home knowing that they're going to do exactly what you want them to do. And so this is exactly what God is saying about his servant. He's saying that this is my servant. He's going to do my will. We can see that in the second half of the first verse where it says, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. What that means is that bringing justice to the nations is God's will. You see the way Isaiah has arranged these phrases. He starts by saying, I will put my spirit on him and then he will bring justice to the nations. These two things are correlated. Bringing justice to the nations comes after the spirit of God has come on him, which means that the will of the spirit of God is to accomplish justice in the nations, to bring righteousness in the nations, to make things right. Now this is the same God who has been described in verse five. In verse five it says, I am the Lord, this is what God the Lord says. It is he who created the heavens, it is he who stretched them out, it is he who, who, spread, who spread out the earth and all that comes from it. It is he who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. This is the God who the servant represents. It is the God who created the universe. It is the king of all kings. It's the Lord of all lords. It's the, it's the God who is sovereign. It's the God above all gods. And so we think about this servant being one with the God of all gods. He must be someone who is reliable. He must be someone who we can trust. But you see, the challenge is when you have knowledge of who this servant represents. If someone here, if someone came and said, I am representing God Almighty, this is something to fear. It's, it's not just any one of the gods that you know about. This is, this is the God who created the universe. The God whose breath is full of life. This is definitely something to be fearful about. It's definitely something to, to tremble over. 
And so the challenge, the challenge is that it becomes easy for us in fear to reject the servant of God. And that's exactly what happened. If we go back to chapter 41 in verse 5, it says, the islands have seen it and fear. What have they seen? They've seen the, man, the, the majestic work of God. They've seen the wonderful things that God has done, which are explained in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 41. So they've seen it and they fear, and the ends of the earth tremble. The thought of God, the, 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 the imagination of how powerful God is brought trembling to these people. But rather than turn to him, what do they do? They approach each other and create idols for themselves. It says at the end of verse 5, it says they approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith and he who and he who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of the welding, it is good. And he nails down the idol so it will not topple. They come together and say, this God is too much for us. Probably too powerful for us. Let's create an idol for ourselves. That's, that's challenging. But it doesn't only always come from fear. Sometimes it comes from the fear of being submissive to someone more powerful than you. And we create idols, or at least these people uh, created idols. Most of the time we create idols of gods that we want to create, that, that, that are really our own creation. And we worship these gods because we, we are happy with the rules that we've created with them. But you see this fear, this fear of the, of an, of, of the God who's, who's uh, the creator of the universe can really cause us to turn away from him. But rather than to think of God as an angry God, rather than to think of God as one who brings justice with an iron fist, Isaiah explains the personality of God or a, the personality of the servant of God that makes it clear about who the servant is. That brings us to our second point. Why, why should we trust the servant of God? Number two, because the servant of God is gentle in serving justice. The servant of God is gentle in serving justice. We'll see that from verse two and three. Verse two says, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. This is just, this is just a metaphoric way for Isaiah to say that the servant of God is not boastful. It's one way of him saying that the servant of God is not proud. He's not pompous. He's not full of himself. And the reason this is metaphoric is because in the ancient times, actually even today, political leaders came into communities 
with, with all this pomp and, and vigor and uh, bow to me. You know, this kind of, this kind of aggression of, of uh, you, you know, with big eagles. This, this is how political leaders in Isaiah's time came into communities. And Isaiah was just trying to say that the servant of God, even though the servant of God is, is the creator of the universe, he comes in humility. But even today we'll see a lot of our political leaders being extremely pompous you don't have to go very far to know this. All you have to do is drive a really small car when the president is passing by. Then you'll know how aggressive our political leaders are in, 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 being, in being pompous about their appearances. But that's not how the servant of God is presented. The servant of God is presented as one who is humble as one who is graceful. The humility of Christ is seen in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, where Paul says that Christ being God, actually Paul is telling, Paul is telling the Philippians to, to imitate the character of Christ. And he says this is the character of Christ. Christ being God did not consider himself, rather did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in, a, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's such a beautiful thing that the creator of the universe, the one whose breath is life, it's such a wonderful thing that that person is humble enough to take the likeness of his creation. And that humility leads to the way he interacts with his creatures. That humility inspires how he interacts with people. And what we learn from verse 3 is that the servant of God has mercy on his people. Verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. You see, when he says a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, is really another metaphoric way of saying that this servant is merciful. He's merciful with those who are broken. He's merciful with those who are oppressed. He's merciful with those who are hurting. He certainly is merciful. You see, the challenge we think about, when we, whenever we think about justice, we think about, we think about anger. 
and, and, and many times in anger, you know, you might storm out of the house and in anger you look at this little flower that's almost, that's almost dying and it's wilted from the sun and you get angry with this flower and you say, this flower deserves to die and you crush it under your foot. This, this is what unrighteous anger does. But the servant of God is presented as one who is merciful with those who are broken. Is merciful with those who are hurting. And so for those of us who are hurting, who are struggling with sin, for those of us who are oppressed by sin, we, we thank God that he has a servant who is merciful with us. We thank God that he sends us a servant who cares for us. And that's good. Because in the humility of Christ, we find a merciful savior who gives us the assurance of an everlasting love. In his mercy, we are assured of a love that is based not on our works, but a love that's based on his grace. In his mercy, we are sure that we have an unconditional love in Christ. We know this because Paul said, he said that while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to die for us. Not, not after we had turned away from sin, no, he says while we were still sinners. And this is the work of a merciful savior. Is that, is that always there? Yeah, should I, should I be concerned? No, it's not, okay. Let's move on. <clears throat> if, if we can, uh, if I won't be distracted. So we really thank God for the servant, for his servant who is merciful with those of us who are broken. However, we need to be careful not to take advantage of the humble gentleness of Christ. You see, what easily happens is the enemy tries to lie to us. He doesn't try. He does lie to us. And he's been, he's been twisting the scriptures from the beginning. The enemy lies that, you know, he'll say that, but, but the God we serve is merciful. The God we serve will forgive. Just go ahead and do that thing that you're tempted to do. After all, God will forgive you. You see, this is a lie. And the enemy, the enemy injects these lies in us. The enemy's plan is to normalize sin so much that it becomes a part of our daily life. To normalize sin and to denormalize repentance. So that we're engaged in sin more than we're engaged in repentance. This is the enemy's plan taking advantage of the, of, the, of the forgiveness of Christ, taking advantage of, of, of a God who is merciful with those who are broken. When temptation comes, we easily give in and say, oh, after all, salvation is not based on my works. After all, the God who we serve is a forgiving God. 
and the church is destroyed in that manner. So we must be careful about how we think about the mercy of our Savior. We must be careful about how we approach the mercy with which the servant serves justice. We need to be careful about that because Isaiah continues to say at the end of verse 3, he continues to say, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Even though we have a merciful savior, even though we have, even though the servant of God is one who is merciful, even though he embraces us and forgives us, in faithfulness, he will serve justice. What this means is that is that he doesn't, he doesn't relent. When it's time to serve justice, when it's time to give those who deserve what they deserve, he will serve justice faithfully. You know, the problem, the problem with some of our theology, sometimes we hear people saying that God is on your side. We hear people say that God, God will serve you what you want. But the servant of God is not our servant. The servant of God is the servant of God. In faithfulness, the servant of God serves righteousness. He serves God. And so when we are lost in sin, if we fall on the wrong side when, when Christ finally comes, Christ or the servant of God will serve justice faithfully. What that means is that we have the responsibility for obedience. We have the responsibility to obey. Even though we have, even though we have a savior who is merciful with us, even though we have a savior who forgives, it's our responsibility to obey. That's why in verse eight of chapter 42, he says, I am the Lord, that is, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. There is no room for one leg to be on one side and the other to be in the world. There's no room to serve two masters. We're either serving God or we're not serving God. Why? Because God will not give his glory uh, or share his praise with idols. Verse 17 of the same chapter, it says, Those who trust in idols will be turned back in utter shame. In verse 24, verse 24 says, Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways, they would not obey his law. And this is our responsibility, to obey the law of God, to love God so much that we abstain from sin. Why? Because when we don't, if, and, and if we never turn to God for forgiveness, if we never turn to Christ for righteousness, the servant of God will serve justice faithfully, without fail.
So the reason we put our hope in Christ is not so that we can take advantage and continue to live in sin. The reason we put our hope in Christ is because we are desperately fallen and in need of righteousness. Because when we do turn to him, the joy that we have is that he will be faithful in serving justice. Number one, we saw that the servant of God is one with God in serving justice. And number two, we saw that the servant of God is merciful in serving justice. Number three, we say that the servant of God is the servant of God is rather the servant of God in his faithfulness he is victorious in bringing justice we'll see that in verse 4 verse 4 says he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth when he says he will not falter or be discouraged, he's really talking about the enduring personality of the servant of God. And this servant is one who will endure until the day that righteousness has been served, that justice has been served. And indeed, that's, it's that endurance that leads to victory. Anyone, <clears throat> anyone who's successful in what they do Ask them, how have you been so successful in your work? I believe that 100% of them will tell you, I've been successful because I endured. When things were hard, I never gave up. When things were tough, I never gave up. I endured and endured and endured. I repeated and repeated and repeated until I became successful. I changed my strategy. I, re I planned. I, 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 I recreated the order of the things that I was doing until I became successful. And that's exactly what endurance means. And that is what the servant of God is doing. He will not falter or be discouraged. When we think about this from a forgiveness point of view, you see, as human beings who are in relationship with one another, it's difficult. Actually, when, when Jesus told one of his disciples, said, forgive, how many times? Seven times. He said, what? But, but how? How am I supposed to forgive that many times? I'm already fed up at the second time. I'm already fed up with, with this person. The third time I have to forgive. But imagine that the servant of God will not falter, be discouraged, or tire. And indeed, he has been victorious in bringing justice because of his endurance. We know how victorious he has been because he endured the cross. 
And you see, endurance begins with mental preparation. I discovered that, I'm sorry Martina, I'm going to use you as an example. I discovered that a few days ago when my wife had to get some injections. My wife, my wife has a, a wonderful immune system, so she never falls sick. And the injections were not because she had fallen sick, but she needed to get the injections. She's terrified, terrified by injections. Ter I think my wife is more fearful of injections than she's fearful of death. And so when the doctor said, we're going to give you an injection, and you know, naturally, you'd get out of the doctor's office, go to the lab for the injection, right? My wife says, no, we have to wait a couple of days. And what's she doing during those days? She's, she's mentally preparing for the injection. And you can see her in the middle of the night, she's awake. Martina, why are you awake? Oh man, the injection, what? Sorry, sorry, Martina. You, we take it up with me after this. <laughs> and that's exactly what Jesus went through at the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing to endure the suffering that was coming on the cross. And he prayed, he prayed the night before, or it was the night, it was, it was the night of, am I right? Yeah. He prayed and he sweated blood and he said, God, I'm not ready for this thing that's coming because he knew that that suffering was going to be enormously difficult. And he asked God, God, if you can, please, can we just reverse this thing? Take this cup away from me. But from what we know, we saw that Jesus did endure the cross for our benefit. He endured the cross. He also endured the shame of the cross. And his resurrection is a testament of his victory. Jesus did not only endure the cross at that time, but Hebrews chapter six seems to imply that Christ continues to endure the shame that is on the cross. When we who are his children turn away from Christ and engage in sin. Christ, it's as though we are crucifying Christ on the cross all over again. And the world looks at us and says, did Christ really die on the cross? If he did, I don't think it worked. Because look at you, we're still in sin. And so we think of Christ having endured the cross at the time of the cross, and we think about Christ enduring the cross in our lives today. Christ persistently prays for us, rather, intercedes for us. Christ persistently forgives us. Christ is not going to get tired. He doesn't falter or get discouraged. And that's a reminder of how merciful Christ is. It's a reminder of how wonderful Christ is. It's a reminder of how holy God is and how fallen we are. Because Christ does not tire.
And so we think about the servant of God being victorious because at the end, or rather in the middle of verse 4, it says, he'll not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In other words, victory or a shortness of victory is not an option. Victory is the only option for Christ. Victory is the only option until he establishes justice on the earth. One way to think about it is uh, if you have children, maybe you have a toddler and the toddler is sitting across the table eating their food and you say, I'm not going to leave this table until you finish your food. Why? Because you want for sure that that child finishes his food. Not finishing that food is not an option. And so we're glad and we're proud to have, we're, we're, we're privileged to have the servant of God being one who is victorious in serving justice. Why is this important to us? Because we must put our hope in the servant of God. We must put our trust in the servant of God. And that's what he says, that's what Isaiah says at the end of verse four. He says, in his law, which is in the law of the servant of God, the islands, which is the, the term they would use to refer to the people of the earth, the islands will put their hope in the law of the servant of God. Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Are we like the people that are explained in chapter 41? Are we like those in fear of circumstance, in fear of shame, turn to other idols and reject Christ? You see, the, the problem is that our hearts are hardened to the truth that, is, that has been made so clear to us. And that's why in verse 20 of chapter 42, verse 20 says, you have seen, and he's talking about the Israelites. It says, you have seen many things but have paid no attention your ears are open, but you hear nothing. Does that represent who, who we are? After having heard the message of the gospel, how do you respond? Are our hearts hardened to the gospel of Christ? Verse 22 says, but this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They've become plunder with no one to rescue them. They've been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Are we the ones who are lost in our sin? Are we the ones who are trapped in sin?
And so the question that's being asked in verse 23 is which, which of you will listen to this? Which of you will pay close attention in time to come? In other words, when are we going to truly turn our hearts to the Savior, Jesus Christ? See, putting our trust in Christ gives us comfort knowing that the servant of God is faithful to do what God's will is. We, we, we're comforted knowing that the servant of God is faithful to do it mercifully. We're confident knowing that the servant of God is faithful to being victorious in saving us, to being victorious in imparting righteousness to us. Putting our hope in the servant of God really is acknowledging Christ as your savior. Putting your hope in the servant of God is allowing Christ to be the Lord of your life. Is allowing Christ and trusting him to make you righteous and to justify you. I encourage you today, put your hope in Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Let Christ be the one who guides every decision that you make. Let Christ justify you. Let Christ make you righteous. Let Christ be the one who you turn to every single day. Let us pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your servant. And we thank you that you are one who keeps your promises because the scripture tells us that your servant has come. Your servant has accomplished what he came to do. Your servant has redeemed us. We thank you, God, for the resurrection from the dead. We thank you that Christ is risen and seated at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that through him we have eternal life and that through him we have been justified, we have been made right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to God's Word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission. Thank you.